I was reading my children's Bible story last night. And we read uh, from Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story, Story, Book, Bible, Bible, whatever it is. There's a lot of names in it, but uh, I've really enjoyed it. And this is how uh, DeYoung explained this one story we were reading about, and it was the story of Joseph and Esau. And he, he, he starts it this way. He says, the Bible has a lot of strange stories. Some of the strangest are about all the ways God blesses people despite themselves. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps us despite ourselves. I enjoyed that. It's very true, and it's very true of the congregation in the city of Corinth. God didn't bless them because they were so great. God didn't bless them because of the, the great spiritual maturity that they had. He blessed them despite their immaturity. That's what we see in the Corinthian church. Incredible immaturity. Incredible immaturity. Um, if you were to kind of just do a brief summary, overview of kind of the context of 1 Corinthians, it was written um, by Paul from Ephesus somewhere around Eighty fifty six, um, things were heating up for Paul too. You can see in um, Ephesians or in First Corinthians sixteen eight that he's talking about being in Ephesus, and there's lots of hard things that are going uh, on there. Um, he had Paul had at this point heard very disturbing reports about the Corinthian church, and he had also received questions from them um, that were disturbing as well. The basic, uh, the basic issue was there was sexual immorality in the church and there was all sorts of worldliness in the church. The, the church of Corinth was looking a whole lot more like the city of Corinth than the people of God that they were called to be. That's basically the situation. And to top it all off, they were arrogant about it. They were very proud about who they were in their immaturity. You see, Paul kind of has received this report. You see in chapter 1, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling, that there is quarreling among you, my brother. So you see, he is not only responding to reports, but he's also going to be answering questions that these, that these people have brought to Paul from the Corinthian church. This would be also the second of four letters that Paul would write to the church. Um, this gets very confusing very fast, and I always like to explain this to students. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians, Corinthians. If you remember that, you'll be fine. But there are two other letters that are lost, and we don't need those letters, but those uh, compile the at least that we know of four letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church all within like a two-year span. So a lot was happening in the Corinthian church. The situation was basically this. They are spiritual infants. They are immature believers. And they are fighting among themselves, and they are self-seeking in their focus, and Paul writes now to correct them. And it's interesting how he does. We want to ask the question, how does kind of Jesus address spiritual immaturity? How does he, how does he address spiritual immaturity through his uh, authoritative instrument, the Apostle Paul. That's what we see. How does, how does Jesus address this? There's basically, uh, if I was to sum up all of the letter of 1 Corinthians in uh, two words, it would be this. Grow up. And, oh, I see where you're going with this. There was a slide before that. That's fine. Uh, the word is grow up. That's what I've kind of put up at the top of 1 Corinthians. That's Paul's basic message to the Corinthian church. Grow up. You are immature. You see this in 3.1. Uh, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You see this also in chapter 16, um, 16, verse 13. Be watchful. This is kind of him ending the letter, summing it all up. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Act like men there is not saying, hey, stop acting like women. But it's basically saying, stop acting like children and grow up. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Pursue maturity. That's the theme of the letter. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity to an immature uh, group of Christians. And, and kind of Paul says this all sorts of different ways. 
But one of the reasons he says this is, hey, you need to discipline yourself and grow up. Otherwise, the Lord's going to discipline you to keep you from being condemned with the rest of the world. The Lord will discipline the immature believer if they continue to be immature. That's what we, we learned from 1 Corinthians. There's this uh, basic two-part kind of structure that Paul follows in the letter to the Corinthians. He's, one, responding to questions he's received, and he's also responding to reports he's heard, right? Sometimes your parents talk to you about something that's going on. Maybe you come to them with a question and they don't just answer you with the question you're asking. They also answer you with the things that they have observed in you, right? It's a good parent that is observant, that's watching you. And Paul has, has two kinds of responses to them. In chapter 1 all the way through 621, you see there is correction for the report received. So, oh, sorry. Yeah, report received. So this is the news that Paul has heard about the Corinthian church. And basically what he's saying is, you are immature. You are immature all throughout 1 all the way through 6. And then 7 all the way through 16, we see correction for the questions sent. And all Paul's saying here in the second half of the letter is really, look at this is the result of all of your spiritual immaturity. That's where all of this is coming from. And now there's this kind of structure that we see starting in 7.1, he continues to say this thing, now concerning this topic, now concerning this topic, and you'll see that all the way through the end of the book. That's him kind of saying, now about this question you asked, now about this question you asked, and about this question you asked, I'm going to give you an answer. But don't you see how all of these questions are actually coming from the spiritual immaturity that you have in your own life. Spiritual maturity, it halts your spiritual growth. It slows you down incredibly. Spiritual maturity also distracts the progress of the gospel. Pastor Steve was talking about this yesterday, right? Look at all of the energy that Paul put into the Corinthian church because they were immature. It distracted from the progress of the gospel. Spiritual immaturity also makes you easy prey for false teachers. When we get into 2 Corinthians, we're going to see that this church that's immature is also very susceptible to false teachers and, and lies in their life. And spiritual immaturity creates, creates increased theological confusion. We're also going to see how the immature church is a very confused church and a very confusing place to be as well. But but really, what Paul says, and he starts out this way, is spiritual immaturity really is just the result of pride in your life. That is the heart of spiritual immaturity. You think you know more than you actually do. You think you're better than you are, and that leads to greater spiritual immaturity. So we're going to try to quickly, now watch me, we're going to try to quickly just kind of zoom through 1 Corinthians and talk about all of the ways that he addresses and corrects um, the issues in Corinth, if you have some questions about these things, um, come to me afterwards or something like that. I'm going to just kind of give you an overview to just show how Paul is urging them towards immaturity. But there's also a surprise that I want to give you and save till the end. A, a gracious, hidden, glorious uh, uh, surprise for immature believers. So if you listen to this letter about 1 Corinthians and you get really discouraged, you're like, man, if I'm an immature believer, I'm sunk. There is glorious good news at the end. So first off, how does Paul respond? How does the Lord Jesus himself respond to the immature believers? Number one, we're going to put this kind of in, in a form of describing immature believers, by the way. Immature believers are easily divided by pride. This is how Paul starts it off there at the very beginning. You see, we already addressed this kind of, he, he says, Chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. They are divided, and they're divided by pride, right? They think they're very special spiritually, so they're, they have, there's all these divisions and rivalries and jealousies within the very church. How does Paul respond to this pride that's causing divisions? Well, he reminds them of the gospel that they heard. It wasn't a wise gospel as the world talks about wisdom. It was a very foolish gospel. If, if, if you're going to be someone that tries to be wise in the eyes of the world, you are going to be someone who is going to be going 
contrary to the actual gospel of Jesus Christ that you've received yourself. Look what he says in chapter 118. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make you look great and glorious and smart. and doesn't make you popular in the world's eyes. It actually makes you look like a fool. And that's what immature believers need to remember. You, if you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not trying to win popularity points with the world. You're not trying to look impressive. And Paul goes on. He doesn't just say that we didn't preach a wise gospel to you. He also says, basically, you guys weren't chosen because you were great. You were chosen because you were idiots. He says this, you were chosen because of your high status in the world. You were chosen because you were in desperate need of God's grace. It says in chapter 1, verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And then Paul also says, we do preach wisdom, but we preach a different kind of wisdom than that the world preaches. We preach spiritual wisdom to those who are growing and mature. If you continue to mature in your faith, you'll continue to see and enjoy and embrace the wisdom of the truth of God's word in your life. That's what he says in chapter 2. And and then he says, basically in chapter 3, but though we speak spiritual truths to spiritual people, you are immature. You are not spiritual people. You are infants in Christ. And then he says, how do I know you're infants? Because there's jealousy, because there's strife, because there's fighting. You are immature. You are immature people because of how you are acting together. Once again, notice you are divided by pride. That's where war and fighting and strife come from. It comes from our own hearts that are warring within us. That's what James 3 tells us. You are immature. And then Paul goes on to say, you should have a humble view of yourself and of your leaders. You should have a humble view of yourself and of your leaders. He says this in, in 3, 8, all the way through 9. He who plants and he who waters are one. Those are the leaders, like Paul and Apollos. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. You should have a humble view of yourself. I am God's field. I am God's building. And all of these servants that the Lord Jesus Christ has sent my way are workers in God's field. And then he says, like a good parent does, I am coming soon. You better get ready for me. In 4, 19 through 20, he says, I'm coming soon. And if you do not respond with appropriate repentance, I'm going to come and rebuke you strongly. That's what he says. And basically, he says, immature believers are easily divided by pride. You guys are immature believers. What else? What else does Paul say? He says, immature believers, secondly, are often proud of their moral looseness, are often proud of their sexual immorality, of their freedoms in Christ that they can can just parade around. Now, this is very ironic, right? Here we have a church that's very proud of themselves, and we see here in chapter 5 and chapter 6, they are arrogant about their their, their freedoms that they think that they have in Christ. Notice what he says. This is, is a terrible report. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. This is a picture of incest. And then in verse 2, and you are arrogant. You are proud of this. You're saying, look at our freedoms that we have in Christ Jesus. Aren't we so spiritual that we allow such a sinner in our midst? No, immature believers are often proud of their moral looseness. That's what we learn here. Immature believers are often proud of their sin. But Paul goes on to tell them that they should judge the evil from among them, because if they don't, they will come under strong discipline. But there's also a reason why you want to be serious about sin in your life. It's that you need to remember who you are and whose you are and why you're here on earth. You have been bought, you have been purchased, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Paul says this in, in 6, 9. 
He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice, there's something different about you. That's why you shouldn't live this way anymore. You have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Just like we sang in that song, right? And then also, notice what he says in in 619. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body, right? You haven't been saved by Jesus Christ to just live however you want. You have been gloriously, mercifully, graciously saved by Jesus and are now His. You are now His sacred space for worship. Paul has heard about their immaturity, and he is, through these first six chapters, just saying, look at your immaturity. But then in the rest of the book, the second half of the book, he says, look at the results of your immaturity. These questions and this confusion that you have about your your, your spiritual life, this is actually a result of spiritual immaturity in your life. Let's move to the next thing he says. As he answers the questions that these Corinthians have, um, he says, thirdly, that immature, immature believers become confused about marriage. Even, even as they are so proud and arrogant of their moral looseness, at the very same time, they are very confused about the gracious gifts that God has actually given them. And they don't know how to live in them. They are ignoring the benefits of marriage. You see this in 7, 1 through 5. They're confused about the wins and whys of divorce. You see this in 7, 6 through 16. And they are confused about what to do with widows or betrothed women that aren't married yet. They're confused about all of these things. And, and basically, I think the heart of all of their confusion is their discontent with the things that God has given them. Right? They're discontent with the things that God has given them. 7 verse 17 says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He basically says all throughout chapter 7, Hey, if you're married, and if you're married to an unbeliever, and if this unbeliever is okay with staying with you, you should be content and say, This is God's mission field for me. Now you shouldn't pursue marriage with an unbeliever. You should be aware of that. You should be cautious of that. He says, if you remarry, you should only remarry in the Lord. If your unbelieving spouse has divorced you, you're free. But if you remarry, only remarry to a believer. But you should ultimately be content. Hey, this is God's calling to me, and I'm going to live in it. Spiritual immaturity leads you basically to blindness in God's gracious gifts. They're pursuing after all of this sexual immorality, and they seem to be most confused about the very gifts that God has given them in marriage. Another thing, um, immature believers, number four, get confused by liberty. Get confused by liberty. Here we are in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. You see, now concerning food offered to idols, brothers. And now some of you are sighing a deep sigh of relief. Ha! Food offered to idols. Finally, something that doesn't apply to me. Thank goodness. Well, actually, this might be the most applicable section to you. Um, This is dealing with the area of gray areas. Hey, if it's a sin for me, but if it's not a sin for my brother or vice versa, if I really have a, a strong conscience about doing something, but they don't, should I insist that they follow my way or should they insist that I follow their way? Paul basically in chapters 8 all the way through 10 lays out some basic principles for how to deal with gray areas. And if you're wondering what a gray area is, um, there there are ways where Christians could disagree because there is uh, maybe an unclear or not specific direction in the Bible. But there's basic principles and guidelines. So, for example, do you guys celebrate Easter? Or do you guys celebrate Resurrection Sunday? Do you follow an Easter bunny around in two weeks? Or do you say, never, never? Whatever you do, that might be a gray area for you. Or maybe the music you listen to is a gray area. Or something like this. Maybe, possibly. But there are some basic principles that we need to think about in regards to gray areas. 
gray areas. I have a slide up that I really want to show you because I feel like this is important for you to think about these things. Like I said, I think this is one of the more, uh, uh, more significant sections for you in chapter 8 through 10. But what are the principles of gray areas? Number one, are my actions based on love or self-seeking? He says this in 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Oh, what, what are my actions built on? Is it built on pride? Is it built on self-seeking or is it based on love? Will this cause a brother to stumble? Will this cause a sister to stumble? He says in 8.13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, just so you're clear about what the situation is, in Corinth there were lots of temples to pagan gods, and a lot of these Christians were former worshipers of these pagan gods. And so when gods were worshipped, animals would be killed, and then meat would be offered to these gods in these temples, and then because the temple was trying to cut a profit, they would sell the meat in the marketplace later that day. So, you as a Christian were eating meat, but that maybe possibly was offered to idols previously. And this would trouble perhaps the conscience of a, of a former pagan idol worshiper. It could also trouble the conscience maybe of a Jew, but probably more this would be a trouble to a Gentile who used to worship in those temples. And like, man, to me, eating that meat was worshiping an idol. And here Paul says, hey, look, if this is going to cause my brother to stumble and sin, I'm never going to eat meat again, right? He is motivated by love, not based on knowledge. Hey, I know that an idol is nothing. He, he, he knows that, but he is more, he's, he, he's preferring to be motivated by love, right? I might be able to do this, but is it the most loving thing that I could do? Are your freedoms more important than your brothers and sisters in Christ? That, that's the question that we see here. Or another principle we see, number two, is this freedom that could easily turn into bondage? Is this a freedom that could easily become a chain in my life? A very important question to ask yourself about various areas of your life is, hey, is this going to... Is this going to result in me needing this? Will I, will I be able to walk away from this? Or will I be bound to this? He talks about this in 10.14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Right? You should flee from anything that causes you to be dependent on it in, in, a, in a sinful, idol-worshipping way. You could ask this also about like areas in your life that you're not sure about. Is this, is this something that's worthwhile, right? Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a, a sport that you like. Maybe it's a hobby that you really enjoy. But do I really want to be the greatest at this? What, what will it cost me to be at the very top of my field in this business or in this practice or in this skill? What will it cost me on a spiritual level? It will cost you something. Is it worth all the time? Will it become a chain and a bondage to me? Or another principle, <laughs> number three, will it build others up? We see this kind of reflected in point number one as well, but will it build others up? This is an emphasis of Paul, chapter 10, verse 23. He says, shall we provoke? Uh, that's not what I meant to say. What did I say? Yeah, sorry about that. 10.23 is not the verse I was thinking of, but 10.33 would be a very good verse for this. Uh, just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seek my own advantage, but that, that of many, that the many may be saved. Notice, he's not even saying, well, is this building me up? He's saying, no, what I want to be motivated by is, is this going to build up others? That is, that is what I want to be the domination of my life. A lifestyle and a practice that is constantly building up others around me. Will these serve others? Or is it just to serve me? Or another principle that I really appreciate and use often. Can I thank God for this? Can I thank God for this? Can I do this activity with thanksgiving in my heart? He says this in verse 30 of chapter 10. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that? For which I give thanks. If you can participate in something with thanksgiving in your heart, you are not sinning in your heart. But ultimately, the main question you need to ask is the fifth one. Will this bring glory to God? Or, flip it in the negative, 
Will this bring dishonor to God? Will this bring glory to God? Will this bring dishonor to God? We're often told, right, in our society and in our culture, right? Hey, it's your body. It's your choice. It's my body. It's my choice. But a Christian thinks totally different about that very question, right? It's God's body. It's God's choice. We already talked about this in 6, 19 through 20. Will this bring glory to God? And let me just say this. In a group this size, with the, the amount of age spectrum that we have in this group, we need to think carefully about this, right? We have a lot of different families represented here, maybe a lot of different personal, um, personal rules that family have set in place, a lot of different age groups. And you need to ask yourself, do you wear your liberties on your sleeve or do you wear your love on your sleeve? Are you focusing on building others up or always talking about all the things that you can do? That's what you want to be motivated by. We want to be a group that stirs one another up to love and good deeds, don't we? We don't want to be a group that stirs one another up to jealousy and divisions and things like that. We should be always seeking to ask ourselves, will it build up? Let's look at another one, though. We got to keep moving here. Um, move through them here, Tate, really fast. <laughs> Oops. Oh, go back. Oh, now you know what my point's going to be. Uh, immature believers are self-seeking in the church gathering. And here, Paul gets into it in chapter 11 all the way through chapter 14. He's talking mainly about what happens in the church gathering. When the church gathers for worship, for hearing preaching and truth, immature believers are self-seeking in that gathering. There's lots of different things we could say here. This is, this is really um, the heart of the book. It seems as though the Corinthian church was, was very, very self-seeking in how they gathered together. Um, first off, in 11, 1 through 16, we see that women in, in some level are seeking to cast off some sort of symbol of male authority over them, whether that's their husbands or something else in the church. They're seeking to cast that off, and Paul rebukes them with theology. And then in chapter 11, 17 through 34, we see that many of them are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. And notice, ladies, the word is supper, not dinner. <laughs> just wanted to point that out. Uh, many are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. We see in 11, 8 through 9, they are divided. There are factions among them. And it's very interesting, that verse there in 19. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized, right? When there's factions and divisions, it's just the Lord graciously saying, hey, some of you are unbelievers, and some of you are immature. It is, it is a very helpful and gracious thing from God. 11.21 also seems to say that there is self-seeking in this church and how they go about the Lord's Supper. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I, I will not. Right there, self-seeking. They are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And then in chapter 12, all the way through 14, we see they are devoid of love. They're devoid of love in their exercise of the spiritual gifts. They're lacking in love. They're self-seeking in all the ways that they want to minister. It's all about who sees them. It's all about their experiences. It's all about what they gain, not what other people gain. That is what immature believers do in the church gathering. Let's just quickly to run through these three chapters. They needed basic instruction in the spiritual gifts. You see in chapter 12 that all spiritual gifts comes from the same spiritual source, the spirit, right? So you're not going to have, you're not going to have divisions. You're not going to have divisions through your gifts if your gifts are coming from the same spirit. You're not going to have one upsmanship. You're not going to have any of these things. They all come from the same spirit, he tells us. And then he also says the body is specially arranged with spiritual gifts, some higher, some lesser, all for building up one another, for gracing one another. And then he also says there is a rank in these gifts. You see that in chapter 12, 27, all the way through 31, right? There, there are apostles, and there are prophets, there are teachers, and then there are miracles, there are healings. There's all sorts of things that the Lord has given to the local church. But it's also, once again, it's, it's for the basic purpose of building up the church. 
And then in chapter 13, this may be a chapter that you're very familiar with. You've probably heard it at wedding after wedding after wedding. It's the love chapter, but really notice where it's sitting. It's right in the middle of a context about the church gathering. And this is what the Corinthians were missing. They were devoid of love. And he says this in chapter 3, 1 through 3, right? If I can do amazing things, if I can say amazing things, but if I don't have love, a desire to build up others, it's pointless. It's worthless. It's empty. It has nothing, nothing of value to it. The Corinthians were just obsessed with the more showy gifts, the upfront gifts. But they were showing that they were devoid of love. And then finally, in chapter 14, he talks about tongues, specifically the gift of tongues. And I can't really improve on MacArthur's outline. So here it is. This is how MacArthur describes this chapter. He says this there, the position of tongues is secondary. This is what he talks about in chapter 14. Tongues are secondary in importance to prophecy. You want prophecy because words of knowledge build up. Tongues that are ununderstood do not build up. So he says their position is secondary. Their purpose is as a sign. It's a sign of God's uh, authenticating message in his apostles, which is why I think this gift and many other gifts have ceased because the apostles are no longer around. We don't need to authenticate the word of God. It's given to us in its authority. It's a sign of God's authoritative message. It's a, it's a sign of a curse from God on unbelievers who can't understand it. Just think about that. To, to not understand the gospel message is a judgment. Um, it's also a sign of God's blessing, God's blessing on the Gentile church. And this was a specific sign that God was giving to the ancient New Testament church. But then also we see in chapter 14, the procedure of tongues is for service to others. And in chapter 14, 26, all the way to the end, he lays out specific actions and procedures that should be followed with the gift of tongues. And the main, the main spirit of it all is, hey, when you're worshiping, it's not about you. It's not about your emotional rushes through the songs you're singing or through the experiences you're having. It's about giving glory to God by, by echoing the truths that you're hearing in song. And it's also about building one another up. That's got to be your heart. So the tongues, directly speaking about the tongues, their position is secondary. Their purpose is for a sign and their procedure is for service to others. And I want to add a little footnote here. Um, a note about tongues, the gift of tongues basically today that we see described today is not the gift that was being described in the New Testament. So we see in charismatic churches, we see people saying, hey, we're just, we're just pursuing the spiritual gifts like we're told to in 1 Corinthians 14. The problem is, is the gift that they are showing has nothing to do with the gift that we see in the New Testament world and even in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. For example... Um, not all are supposed to speak in tongues. There are some churches that say, unless you speak in tongues, you are not truly a Christian. But we see this in chapter 12, all the way in 13, uh, chapter 12, verse 30, there is an implied no to all these questions. So not everybody is supposed to speak in tongues. Once again, they're, they're a sign. Uh, they have a specific purpose in mind. But it's not that everybody needs them to show that they are Christians. Another, another thing to think about with tongues is Luke Luke uses the same word for tongues in Acts 2 and, and Acts uh, chapter 10 to describe um, understandable foreign languages. And it's kind of interesting to me that Luke never tries to describe what's happening other than these are tongues. And Luke was one of Paul's close associates, so he knew that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians when he wrote Acts, but he never thought to describe tongues as anything different than foreign languages. What does that tell you? That tells you that what Paul is describing here is probably foreign languages that are understandable, that should be interpreted, that could be interpreted. They're not some heavenly language. That's not what we see. And that brings us to another point, number three. Paul assumes tongues could be understood. You see this in chapter uh, 14, verse 10, 10 through 11. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I 
will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager to manifest the spirit, strive to excel in building up. He's assuming there, hey, if you do not speak to one another in an under, un, in an understandable way, you will not be building up one another. And tongues are for building up. He also says this in, in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them be kept silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Look, if there's nobody to interpret, you're not doing anything good. You should be able to interpret these tongues. Notice that. Just just implied that you should be able to interpret these tongues. Number four here, uh, tongues without interpretation are without benefit. That's basically what Paul's saying. So some people want to say, well, it's just my prayer language. It's something that I do between me and God. But it's no benefit to you if you don't understand. Look what he says in verse 5. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Remember the priority of prophecy over tongues. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Notice tongues without interpretation doesn't do anyone any benefit. So there should be interpretation, and you should be able to interpret tongues. And then another thing, number five, tongues were controllable. You see this in verse 28. You should be able to stop doing tongues if it's not of benefit to others. Number six, tongues without control create confusion and ridicule. We see this in, in chapter 14, 23, and 33, right? If you, if you don't interpret you're going to be ridiculed by the world. And we don't want that. We want to be, we want to be instruments of truth, instruments of light to the world, not confusion and ridicule to the world. Or to sum it all up with number seven. No, never mind. I got one more. Uh, tongues won't be forever. Chapter 13, Paul says tongues will cease. Prophecies even will pass away. So this isn't some super uber spiritual language. Otherwise, we'd expect to see this in the eternal state. But clearly this is for a temporary purpose to be a sign of God's work here, right? Just as it was in Acts 2 and Acts 10. It was a sign that people understood that God was doing glorious things because they could understand it in their own language um, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And number eight, just to kind of sum it all up, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 seem rather to correct the very things the current movements are pursuing, right? These are these. If you look at the charismatic church today, it's full of chaos. It's full of self-seeking. It's full of all these things. And these are the very things that Paul is correcting in First Corinthians 12, all the way through 14. So we shouldn't see this as a proof text for all of these things. We should see this as a rebuke of immaturity and everything else that Paul has to say for us. That is. That is. Immature believers are self-seeking in the church gathering. Number six, immature believers are easy prey for dangerous doctrine. We'll jump through this really fast. But, and because, we're going to be talking about the resurrection at a summer camp coming your way. So we don't need to talk about this very, very long. But the Corinthian church was prey to false teaching. And we see this begin to happen in 1 Corinthians 15. They are starting to believe that the resurrection isn't going to happen or already happened. And Paul writes to correct them on that. To just summarize what he says, he gives the historical certainty of the resurrection. If you're ever questioning the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 1 or 15, 1 through 11. And then he gives the logical result if there isn't a resurrection at all in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Basically, if there is no resurrection, we're idiots. We're the most to be pitied of all the people in the world because we have no hope beyond this life, and we're living for another life, right? We, the whole entire Christian life is living for eternity. And if there is no resurrection, our entire Christian faith is destroyed. And then he says in 1520 through 28 that there is a future bedrock significance to the resurrection. You can read that yourself. And then he says in 1529 through 34 that there is a present significance to the resurrection. And then in 1535 through 49, he talks about what the resurrection bodies will be like. And if you've ever been interested to know, what is it going to be like to have a resurrected body? Paul explains it to you in 1535 through 49, a little bit. 
He, he just says a few things. He says these bodies are going to be imperishable, they're going to be glorious, they're going to be powerful, and they're going to be spiritual. That is the glorious resurrected body that believers look forward to. And then... I say we're going through this fast, I apologize. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57, he talks about the victory that is the resurrection. And you see this. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That is what the resurrection tells us. It tells us that when we are at a deathbed of a believer, we are not at a deathbed of defeat, but a deathbed of victory because we believe that that person will be resurrected in a glorious, imperishable, powerful, spiritual body one day. And that is our hope. That is the hope of the Christian gospel and the resurrection. And he kind of summarizes it all in this practical verse there in 58, one of the best verses um, you'll see there. Verse 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved, because of all this stuff, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But immature believers fall easy prey to doctrinal dangers. Your, your spiritual immaturity will make you ignorant of the past. It will make you useless in the present. And it will make you hopeless in the future. That is what spiritual immaturity produces in your life. Finally, last thing Paul says, immature believers get off track and need leaders. In chapter 16, he's basically giving you uh, kind of a travel summary and his plan for coming to them. And basically, he says all of this because, hey, you guys have gotten off on this thing that you, pr- uh, you promised to do, which was to gather money for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. But because of your spiritual immaturity... You are sidetracked from those good works that you were supposed to be pursuing. And I also want to prepare you for Timothy's coming, for Apollos' coming. That's what he talks about. And this is basically Paul's letter to the immature believers at Corinth. It's a very sobering letter. It's a very, it's a very um, difficult letter. It's a letter that's basically saying over and over and over again, you need to repent of your spiritual immaturity because it will destroy you. The picture of immaturity is not something that we should hold up and say, man, this is the kind of spiritual life that I want. But we should look at 1 Corinthians and say, this life is trouble and a problem, and it will get me off track and it will ruin those around me. That is how Jesus approaches uh, immature believers. But there's something else I want to see, show you here. There's a, there's a hidden, glorious, wonderful truth about how Christ Jesus also approaches these immature believers. And if you're an immature believer this morning, which you are because you're young, don't forget to read 1 Corinthians 1. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read it really quick here. How does Jesus approach an immature church? How does Jesus come to immature believers? How might Jesus come to you? comes to you with three attitudes. Three attitudes. He comes to you with great authority. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He, he sends a fully authoritative messenger, representative of himself, to rebuke, correct, teach, guide, the Lord Jesus sends authority. He comes with great authority. And notice it's by the will of God. It's not by Paul's will. It's not by your will. And this reflects uh, the idea that, man, it's all dependent on God's grace. His authority is his grace. A biblical Christian sees themselves this way, too. They see themselves as someone that didn't make themselves better, that God doesn't choose because they're so great, but that God saves despite themselves. And he sends an authoritative messenger. But notice also how he describes this church with great authority. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Notice how he describes the church in Corinth. They are full of sin and immaturity, yet Paul emphasizes that they belong to God. He he emphasizes that they are the Lord Jesus Christ's possession. Right? I own you. I own your body. Your body is a sacred space for worshiping me. Remember that. 
emphasizes it right out of the gates. And this is, in my mind, an application of encouragement if I ever heard one, right? You are sinful. You are immature. But you are still mine. You still belong to me. I haven't thrown you out. You still belong to me. And that's why I'm pursuing you with repentance, with correction, even this day. And then he says to those, to those, to that church in Corinth, and then he says at the end of chapter 1, verse 2, together with all those, together with all those who are, who are Christians everywhere, who call upon the name of the Lord in every place. He says this. And this is a helpful encouragement as well, because Paul links them with other churches. Hey, you're not any better than these other churches. You all call on the Lord as Lord. But, but notice there's an encouragement here as well. Your situation that I'm addressing you today could be addressed to you, but it could be addressed to every church because every church belongs to me. And as a matter of fact, your church, I'm going to use as an instrument to be instructive to all the churches of God. All the churches of God may not struggle particularly with the same manifestations of your immaturity, but you all have the same weak, immature hearts. And I, through my grace, am going to send authority to you to correct you so that other churches of God may be helped. This is incredibly encouraging because this also reminds us that, hey, I may, my sins may make me feel special and peculiar and extraordinary, but in the grand scheme of things, in God's grace, they are all sins that are common to man, unsurprising. And they belong to all the churches of God on a heart level. And Jesus comes and approaches the immature church with authority. Isn't that wonderful? But he also comes with great thanksgiving. Notice this, great thanksgiving. Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 1, I give thanks to my God always for you. He says he thanks God continually, always for this church, this immature church that hates, that seems to dislike him and maybe is planning to kick him out in a few weeks and say, hey, you're not a real apostle. He thanks God for these difficult unbelievers or uh, immature uh, believers. And this, this reminds us, right? When you're dealing with sin, you should always begin with thanksgiving to God. If you're dealing with immature believers in your life, you should begin with thanksgiving to God. Why? Why does Paul thank God for this church? He gives two reasons why he thanks God. Because immature believers are still sanctified ones. You see this in chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Sanctified saints, they're the same word. To those ones who are holy in Corinth and are called to become holy. The, the, the Bible always talks about believers this way. It says in Hebrews ten fourteen. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are continually two things. You are a sinner and a saint, continually, all your days. But immature believers are still sanctified once. At the same time, we obviously don't rest in our in our immaturity, right? This, 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 glorious, this glorious picture that Christ gives us of who we are causes us to yearn and, and strive after holiness and, and be dissatisfied to continue in sin. But there's another reason why Paul gives thanks. He gives thanks because immature believers are still graciously gifted for God's purposes. Chapter, five, uh, chapter 1, 5 through 7, talks about all of these gracious gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to this church. Remember those gifts? There was such a problem in Corinth. It wasn't the gifts that were the problem. It was their attitudes towards the gifts. They were given these gifts to build up the church of God. And Paul could still thank the Lord Jesus Christ for the gracious way that Jesus had gifted this church. That is an amazing thing to think. And we'll actually jump in his, uh, kind of, we'll, we'll join together his, his final reason for Thanksgiving and kind of a, a final point on the attitude of the Lord Jesus towards the immature believer. Finally, number three, Jesus approaches immature believers through his authoritative apostle with great anticipation. With great anticipation. Verse seven, you are not lacking in any gift. 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice what Paul says there. Notice the truth of Jesus Christ, even to the immature believer. Christ will continue to sustain the immature believer. Christ will continue to send apostles of rebuke, words of correction, to try to get them back on track, to try to get them to repent. Christ will continue to sustain them all the way to the end. Somebody would say it this way. Somebody has said it this way. The problem that Paul is seeking to address is that the Corinthians were reliant on themselves and their giftedness and their strength, and he was trying to redirect their focus and their dependence to God and to Jesus Christ. Christ will continue to sustain you all the way to the end, and also he will present you blameless. He will never be done with his immature church. Why? Because he has completely purchased and pardoned them through his blood. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, right? Once were some of you, but you have been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will present you blameless, guiltless in that day without fault. In that day, you will be completely, perfectly changed. As he talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, you will be changed. And in that day, you will be perfected in holiness, in strength, in power, and in love. Just one last verse. This is, this is it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as... I have been fully known. In the end, in the end, these things will pass away, but you will be perfected, changed perfectly. And that is the hope of the immature believer today. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this message. We thank you for the humility that it causes, but we also thank you for the great hope and encouragement that can be found from this church. And we pray that we would be humble and ready to learn from them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.